Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy weekly podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind the energy news. I'm uh, CEO Peter White. We've got with us Rethink Energy editor Harry Morgan. Hi, Peter. Uh, solar analyst Andres Vontelar. Hello there. And we've got uh, our new analyst uh, Bogdan Avramuta. Hello. And uh, even newer analyst Connor Watts. Thank you for having me. <laughs> On the show today, uh, we're going to go over a, for, a, a research paper we've just put out on um, electrolyzer gigafactories. We've done a count and we've looked at, uh, at the position where they're all, where they're all going to be in the next four or five years. Um, and another story we're going to look at is, is we, the fact that um, India distribution companies, energy distribution companies, have um, massive debts and are, are late paying to the tune of billions and billions of dollars and what friction that's causing the Indian market. And then we're going to have a, a last, uh, we're just going to have a little look at uh, Saudi Aramco's um, um, quarterly numbers and a statement that they are going to enter the hydrogen market, but the blue hydrogen market, which um, seems obscure. So first we're going to go to Harry, who's going to talk us through his Electrolyzer Giga factory report. Yeah, so I just want to go into too much detail about the actual um, the figures from the report. But essentially what we've done is we've produced a global count of the gigafactories for electrolyzers uh, by country, by company, uh, by electrolyzer type, uh, right through to 2032, or what we anticipate will be announced right through to 2032. Um, what the headline figure is really is that we're going to see more than 100 gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity before the end of this decade. And the... Obviously, we're seeing this huge demand for green hydrogen at the moment, but we actually believe that the electrolyzer um, production capacity will grow at a rate that's going to be more than fast enough to actually keep up with that. Okay, so what? What um, you know, when you, you reach that number, uh, what does that mean in terms of tons of hydrogen, and how how many times will that multiply the market? So, I mean, right through to twenty fifty, we're looking at the hydrogen market itself um, going around sort of ten times. We've only got. Um, production capacity at the moment for electrolyzers at around two gigawatts so in terms of production capacity it's a sort of 50, it's 50 fold growth really over the next 10 years which is um just staggering really when you consider it compared to any other markets it's very much alongside um looking at sort of the boom in sort of solar panels we've seen the boom in lithium-ion batteries we've, we've seen the uh, interesting thing as well is that it's going to be really split across three technologies so uh, pro, uh pem electrolyzers aem electrolyzers and solid oxide electrolyzers um these obviously all have different places we see in sort of the production of green hydrogen in different settings. Um, and I think that's going to be really key. And we've also, the report itself also goes into other disruptive approaches that might then come in and disrupt those uh, different electrolyzers. I mean, for the hydrogen cynics in the audience, and I know there are some who still um, believe that Elon Musk is right, um, what, what would you say, I mean, about this sort of growing momentum? These are all very established, large um, engineering-led businesses that are running these, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, we've got some of the biggest companies in the world, right, bidding for these. So we've got Siemens Energy, obviously, is looking to be a huge player in this. Uh, we've got ThyssenKrupp, but we've also got Cummins. But obviously, you've got then the, the dedicated electrolyzer manufacturers like Nell, ITM Power, uh, Genvia. We've got loads of new players entering the market as well, like Omium. So there's a real wealth of players. Obviously, we've not even really seen the, much activity from the Chinese manufacturers yet, and they're bound to come and try and basically replicate the same size as the Western manufacturers in their own right. So I think 
that's that in itself shows that there is this huge demand for hydrogen and that there very much is this supply side um side of the market really building up the one thing i would say obviously about the, the cynic side of the market and i think there are areas of the economy where you can poke holes in hydrogen's ability to decarbonize i mean passenger vehicles is a, is a key example of that but if you look at the the range of um applications where hydrogen will have an impact there is there is still a significant number where there's going to be this huge market for hydrogen and while we might not see it to the extent in home heating that people are talking about or as i said within passenger vehicles when you aggregating across things like steel cement aviation there is going to be this huge market for hydrogen and um i think yeah generally that, that that's what these electrolyzer manufacturers are seeing and they're only just going to be able to keep up with the demand in terms of their production capacity yeah i think i think hydrogen is one of those um it's not a technology it's a gas um, so what what will happen is um, a very specific segments will start to emerge um, and people will say, oh, and I knew I was right about hydrogen, it's never going to be used for um, heating homes. But and then around 2040, someone's going to say, you know, it's so cheap, we could use it to heat homes. Um, and, and suddenly, you know, there'll be another reinvention of hydrogen down the road. And we, uh, we see it going through two or three reinventions. And I think that's that's the key here. We are forecasting, in the most part, out 30 years. And we're, we're used to seeing rapid change in under 10 um, in most technology areas, not in energy, but in most technology areas. So we, we get a 10-year rapid change. Uh, and in this instance, this is, is, is mostly driven by um, very large uh, forms of transport and uh, industry. Uh, and then after that, it's another market. So I think people kind of forget the timescale sometimes. And they, uh... In fact, there's two other stories in this week we can, we can almost look at. So BMW and Toyota, um, who wrote that? That was, um, was that you, Bogdan? That was me. Okay, so they, they have a little pact, um, on, you know, on, on uh, pooling their R&D in, uh, in hydrogen. And, and as we, we talked that through, we said, well, will this affect the ability for uh, fuel cells to go into passenger cars? Probably not. But it, it might, if, if three or four more of them come into it. And in Harry's forecast on transport of, uh, a month ago, he said very clearly that um, um, light commercial vehicles you know, will be prone to uh, using hydrogen as a fuel source. Um, and there's four or five companies he's highlighted that are also researching that now, simply because things like taxis and delivery vans uh, don't want to wait three or four hours uh, while they recharge. Um, their, their whole ec- economic basis for existence changes, um, and they'd rather buy a very expensive uh, fuel cell that, uh, and use hydrogen than, than waste, uh, waste the driver's time. So th- there's definitely going to be... Um, so that story you know, hints at another future use. And Saudi Aramco in its profits, um, talked about committing to a blue hydrogen future. Um, is that likely? Their commitment towards blue hydrogen is set to ramp up at 2027, I believe they said, the max capacity of natural gas to be used as a feedstock in the production of blue hydrogen. But the choice to do so seems rather short-sighted during, well, considering developments in electrolyzer technologies and the price spike the, the, fundamentally the price spike you know will the we we we're gonna set out um bogdan's gonna do a paper uh, later this month um setting out to establish you know is the price spike in natural gas 
which is which means that blue hydrogen now would be much too expensive if you start with that as a feedstock. Is is that a temporary or a long term um, phenomena? You know, is there going to be a crimp on um, on natural gas? And the the problem with analysing these things out is you only analyse them out with the facts you've got. Um, we um, this morning uh, it turns out that Sinopec, the um, Chinese oil company, has had a massive find of gas and um, oil on its own territory um, in, in Ninyang, and so suddenly it, it's it's been looking for um, oil on its own own land for years and years and years, and it has some, but suddenly it's got a ten-year supply uh, of natural gas. Um, suddenly uh, underneath its feet. And when news of that leaks out, what's that going to do to the gas price? I mean, everyone's got a, 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 a stab at what the get, when the gas prices will go back to normal. Um, mostly, we, don't, we think they don't. And then an event like that happens. So, um, you know, if, if natural gas goes down to um, $3 a kilogram at any time in the near future... Um, then possibly blue hydrogen's got a three-year window of opportunity before all these electrolyzer companies can um, can ramp up. But that's all. And if they're only going to deliver it in 2027, it's just something to say uh, at their at their um, their results conference. It's not something they're actually going to do. Harry, what do you think? I think that's something that, yeah, I wanted to, I suppose, I, it comes actually from a conclusion from, from this report we've just written, is that the fact that we've got enough production capacity from electrolyzers through to 2030 means that there literally is no case for blue hydrogen. I mean, we've talked about blue hydrogen a lot in the past. Uh, I absolutely despise it. I think it's literally just a way for these oil companies, um, and as you can see from Saudi Aramco, it's a case for these oil companies looking to try and extend the life of their oil and gas assets. Um, it's, I mean, they've tried it before with carbon capture on natural gas plants. They've tried it before in terms of talking about reducing the, their operational efficiencies or in, improving their operational efficiencies. It's just another way of them trying to extend and delay their actual climate action. Um, and I think that these companies will suffer for it. I think, obviously, they'll invest in blue hydrogen now. Those investments will return absolutely nothing, um, or, bait, or near to nothing anyway. Um, and the, these green hydrogen projects and, and the companies that are actually actively investing in green hydrogen, which, to be fair, some of the oil majors are, um, these companies will will actually just take over these markets. So I think that the ones investing in blue hydrogen, they're tying themselves to oil and gas, and as we'll see through Bogdan's paper coming in the next few weeks, gas being the last the last thing that these companies can rely on, they will, they will fall with that gas demand. So that will be... Um, when this reckoning happens, and uh, yeah, we imagine to see it at the end of this decade. I think perhaps we're going to move on to the next story. Indian Ministry of Power's latest statistics find that distribution companies in India are 14.4 billion uh, overdue payments to generating companies. Um, Andres, what what are the mechanics behind that? Are, are they are they skint? Are they having trouble collecting money, or are they just doing this deliberately? Oh, I think they are skint, and I think part of that is thanks to the uh, the state governments. And in fact, not only are the state governments not so so India is a federal country, uh, which is kind of relevant to the political side of this. So not only are the state governments not seeing fit to bail out these distribution companies, which are messing up the energy investment by failing to pay what's owed to 
um, generators on time, including especially renewable energy, wind and solar generators and project owners. Um, the state governments themselves have, um, I think it was a few billion, I've written it somewhere in the article, uh, that they themselves owe to the utility companies uh, that they just haven't paid on time. And so th- that figure of 14.4 billion, uh, they do they do pay it. They are constantly paying that amount, but it's, it's about a month late uh, on average now. And... Um, and it's it's this problem that has continued. I think it's become a big problem uh, over the course of the, the Narendra Modi's government since he came into power in 2014. Um, but I think probably that's because of how he's pushing a lot uh, of new generation capacity. I, I don't know if he's necessarily to blame. It might be more. I get the impression that it's more an artifact of him uh, pushing renewable energy generation and the the traditional, the very traditional way that the grid is set up. Uh, on a, on a state-by-state basis, that the, the local state authorities don't want to have to bear the price of this, um, when I think they, they really they should. They're certainly getting the, the electricity after all. And so it's an ongoing conflict involving court cases, involving the centralization of power. That, that was a recent controversy with the energy sector reform bill, um, with opposition politicians saying that uh, Modi was undermining the federal nature of India, um, you also have another recent reform where the generating companies are now going to be given some ability to actually cut the power supply that they provide to the utilities, uh, to the distribution companies, I should say, because that's what they're called, if they're not paid on time, if it's delayed enough. So, yes. So if, if, if you were, were a foreign um, company uh, reading this item, does that encourage you to go and conduct business in India? Well, I don't think it would necessarily deter you because if you've been thinking about that, you probably are familiar with this issue and it is getting worse. It seems to have grown by 5%, that that, uh, 14.4 billion figure, which is one of several figures, um, that's grown by 5% each of the past two months. So it is getting worse. Uh, It it would be cause for concern, but the courts, when they get involved, uh, including the state-level Supreme Courts, um, they seem to always side or mostly side with the with the generators so and you know the Modi administration like i just said it is taking new actions so on balance it, it, it's still something that uh, has to be taken into consideration but i don't think it's suddenly become a new disaster it's just something that is still going on and is reaching ever greater heights um possibly not more so uh, than the scale of renewable generation is, is growing actually it may only be growing because of of that um, but it, it, it's it's kind of questionable to see how this is actually going to be solved for good, uh, because it, it just takes billions and billions and billions of dollars. And in the most extreme case, you have Tamil Nadu. Uh, if, if if it bailed out its utility, uh, its distribution company uh, on the grid from all of the debts that it has, that would be 5.2% of their GDP, which is just, um, I, I don't think that's going to happen. What led to this debt in the first place? I think it's a general haphazard late paying um state governments anyway and and then just stretching out over a period of years you know i mean there's the i think you, you've described the resistance to uh, modi's um uh, love of renewables not wanting to hold the auctions uh, pay pay for the renewables when when they've agreed a deal um and almost resenting his interference 
Well, I think if I was going to answer this question of what causes this debt, I, I would really want to look into it a bit more. But the strong impression I get is that, rather like we've seen in some other countries, it's in this awkward transitional period where you have traditional state-owned utilities and there's a transition to a more uh, free market system. That was one of the controversies with the, with the recent power bill, whose name I should probably say if I'm going to keep mentioning it. Let me take a moment to look it up. I must have written it in this damn article somewhere. It's called the Electricity Amendment Bill of 2022. One of the things that does is it allows uh, more more participation in the market as an electricity distributor. So it won't be so much of a monopoly within each state now. So what what this means, uh, and it's probably very similar to what's happening in Mexico, is that the traditional utilities, when you start transitioning to a more free market system – they still, for at least some time, still have all of the obligations to maintain infrastructure, to provide power to everyone. But when the private sector comes in, it starts gobbling up the most profitable parts. Um, that, that, that's what I would think is, is probably going on. And another thing is that Narendra Modi is forcing these states to um, participate in the development of renewable energy. Uh, they don't necessarily want to. It seems to be very much a central government agenda. And so they don't want to pick up the bill. And he's trying to get them to. Okay, um, I mean that, that's not going to roll out very rapidly. Uh, nothing happens very rapidly in India, um, as I've kind of mentioned in the past. But um, I think you know, we we obviously think uh, Modi is a force for good, and that um, they're headed in the right direction, albeit somewhat slowly. And um, those three or four stories we've mentioned are in the issue. And we normally like to take um, something from the uh, um, from the worth noting section, but I want to bring up something else that, are, uh, that, that we're probably going to put in next week's issue. I mean, we put in a piece this week about um, weather in China and what it's done to slow down uh, the economy. Um, but um, there's Nature... Um, Nature magazine has produced... Um, some a paper on um, the Tibetan plateau, and something I've always used as an example to the world is what happens if the Tibetan plateau doesn't have snowfall on it, but has rainfall on it, and it rushes to the, the through the countries of China, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh um, to the sea in, in a few days, weeks, and then there's no more water for a year. Well. Um, it turns out that that's precisely um, what this paper is about. And in the same week, we hear that the Yangtze River is at the lowest level it's ever been at. Um, and th- this has not only um, stopped, as, as the article that Connor's written, um, hydro being produced. Uh, China ha- has built uh, 22,000 dams in the last 20 years um, many of them uh, that drive their electricity um, and suddenly the Yangtze River is so low that um, it can no longer be used for transport uh, and the freshwater lakes are drying up and it, it's, it's an emergency uh, already so I, I was always using that example of what happens if you get a food crisis um, in that part of the world simply because it, um, uh, precipitation doesn't fall as snow but, uh, and then leaches up through the, uh, through the rivers over the next six months but falls as water and starts with a flood and ends in a drought. Um, that seems to be happening right now. This is going to focus people's minds 
and it's happening much sooner than anybody in the world thought. Well, relating to my article this week, there were some reservoirs within Western China that are already about half level. And if that's only going to worsen, and those reservoirs are going to become ever more ineffective with the change from snow to water and then for, for that to flow through, that hydropower is going to be largely defunct. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is more hydropower in, in China than anywhere else in the world. America has a lot of uh, hydropower, but it's mostly not suffering from drought as yet. We have the great example of Brazil, which um, keeps saying, oh, and there's been a drought this year. But they're saying that now for over a decade. So I don't think it's a drought. I think the climate has changed. Um, and yeah, and, and, and as a result, what do they use to replace it? Fossil fuels. They burn fossil fuels to generate electricity shortfall um, from it. So it, it is a worrying time. Um, I don't believe droughts are that, that cl clear um, at, at this stage, but there is less, um, less snow on the Tibetan Plateau, and, and it should be a key focal point for anybody who's involved in uh, um, the energy transition or climate change. Just there should almost be a camera on it showing you how it's shrinking that anyone on the internet can look at because it's a fundamental importance if two and a half billion people um, can't get enough water to grow food um, that's a lot of people to feed and we and the world the rest of the world can't do it so it's a it's something to be monitored and I'm sure the Chinese take it very seriously and will be taking active evasive action very quickly um, with that um there's more in this issue. Um, go and see the issue at rethinkresearch.biz. Um, click energy, click weekly analysis, and, and those stories are for free. You can download the issue as a PDF. Um, what is not free uh, are the, is the data behind forecasts and data where um, we have um, new research going up almost every day at the moment. Um, the Gigafactory report is up there. We've just published another polysilicon manufacturing update. Um, we've got a new battery energy uh, storage systems uh, forecast to 2050. Uh, there's three or four more going up in the next week or two. Um, that service costs $4,600, um, which is a steal, um, but at the same time, it's something we put our heart and soul into. Uh, and with that, I think we'll say um, that's the end of this week's podcast and we'll talk to you again next week.